Originally, I'm from Atlanta, and I had never been to Albany until the day we moved here. Um, and it is not what I perceived it would be. Uh, I always tell people I'm more surprised still that we lived in Las Vegas than I, or that we lived in Southwest Georgia than I ever was surprised that we lived in Las Vegas. Um, but we have loved being here over the last year and a half and have really grown to love Sherwood as if we grew up here. Um, but perception is important, right? Albany turned out to be different than I perceived it to be. And how we perceive things to be impacts the vast majority of our decisions, right? If I perceive the item of a, at a store to be, that's on sale to be a good deal, then I might buy it, right? If I perceive an investment to be wise, then I might make it. If I perceive that you're a bad driver, I'm probably not going to get in the car with you, right? If I, these perceptions, they matter, and they impact the decisions that we make. And, and obviously, that's not just true for Christians, right? Perceptions impact everyone, and especially this idea of a perception of relatability, right? If I perceive that someone is relatable, then I'm more inclined to listen to what they say, or I might care more about the things that they do. And in our American culture, there is a group of people uh, that I think we focus on this idea of relatability, probably more than anyone else as it pertains to news and the media and social media and expectations. And that group is celebrities. Anyone from actors to singers to athletes to politicians, if they're famous, we want to know about them, right? And, and this idea of a perception of relatability is actually what led an editorial board at Us Weekly magazine to create a feature column that would change the way American culture perceives celebrities forever. In April of 2002, a group of editors in their weekly content meeting they gathered together when a photo editor put a group of photos on the table in front of them for everyone to see. And most of these are red carpet shots and pictures of celebrities doing glamorous things on vacation. Uh, they're beautiful photos, right? Except for this one that caught the attention of a woman named Bonnie Fuller, who was the editor-in-chief of Us Weekly magazine. All right, and the reason that this picture captured her attention is it's a picture of Drew Barrymore picking up a penny on the sidewalk. And it doesn't matter if you don't know who Drew Barrymore is, I didn't know who it was either, but she's a famous and successful actress. And as Bonnie looked at this picture, she said out loud to the group, she said, look at Drew Barrymore, she's picking up a penny. It's like the stars, they're just like us after all. And this sparked something that would change the way we perceive celebrities forever because this group of editors went on to create a feature column in Us Weekly magazine called Stars, They're Just Like Us, where all it contains is pictures of celebrities doing day-to-day -day activities. You have LeBron James taking out the trash, or Tom Cruise filling up his car with gas, or, or you have Tom Brady taking his kids to the playground, or you've got Michelle Obama wrapping Christmas presents, or Jay Leno, he's riding the subway, and, and that's it. That's all these pictures are, except they come with a little caption that says something like, look at Tom Brady, he's taking his kids to the playground, he's just like us. Or, look at Taylor Swift, she's eating cereal, just like us. And I know that to a lot of us that sounds so stupid, right? Uh, but this has now been the highest rated, longest running feature column in Us Weekly Magazine's history. 
It's like as a culture, we are desperate to personalize these people that at some point seemed like they lived and operated on a totally different planet than us. We want to know that they aren't any different than us. And as Christians, we actually carry a similar frame of, no, of mind as it comes to the big names or the celebrities we read about in Scripture. And similar to how we may have this love-hate relationship with celebrities in the media, I think that some of us live on two sides of the same coin when it comes to the idea of a perception of relatability as it pertains to these biblical figures. And what I mean by that is that on the one hand, there's a part of us that really does want to know that these people are relatable, right? We want to know that we can have the faith and the life and the courage that these people in the Bible had. We want to know we can love God just like them. We want to know that we can pour out our souls in prayer to God like David. We want to know that we can finish the race well like Paul. We want to know that we can face difficult times with courage like Esther or that we can stand on truth like Peter or that we can trust in God's provisions like Elijah. But then on the other hand, I think that we sometimes like that these heroes of Scripture seem a little bit out of reach. They don't seem that relatable because whether or not we'd like to admit it or admit it out loud, we sometimes are pretty comfortable to hide behind our perception that those guys are unrelatable in order to excuse our own lack of faith or the fragility of our prayer life or the, our lack of commitment to the cause of Christ. We'll say things like, well, but that's David. I mean, he's a man after God's own heart. I can't compete with that. I can't do the things he did. Or we'll say, well, okay, Moses, like, he heard God out of a burning bush. Like, if I heard out of a burning bush, I could do more stuff too with courage. Right? Or we, or we say, Paul's different. He was blinded on the road to Damascus. Like, if I had that cool of a testimony, I'd be sharing the gospel a lot more too. And I want you to keep this in mind and I want you to examine yourselves tonight. Because I think if we're honest, a lot of us do sit on both sides of the fence when it comes to this perception of relatability. We want them to be relatable, we don't want them to be relatable. And I want you to keep that in mind because tonight we're gonna to be looking at a man who on paper seems like one of the most unrelatable people in the whole Bible. And that man is Elijah. And because it would be easy to dismiss the life of Elijah as unrelatable and his faith and his godliness unattainable, we're going to start tonight in a text that's not our main text. We're going to start tonight in James 5, 16 through 18. Because it's not me claiming that Elijah is, a, is relatable or that his faith and his godliness are a suitable example for us to, to strive for. It's scripture. So James 5, 16 says this. The prayer of a righteous person has power as it's working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. For, and for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And now, if this wasn't from Scripture, this probably seems like a pretty bold statement to make about Elijah. Because even in Scripture, to me, it seems like a pretty bold statement to make about Elijah. Because if you know anything about this man, you know that he was hardly anything like us at all. Elijah was hardcore in just about every sense of the word. All right, he lived through a famine that lasted three and a half years. 
he faced the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and called down literal fire from heaven. He struck down 450 false prophets at the river Kishon. He ran 17 miles ahead of a horse and chariot from from Carmel to Jezreel. He gave food to the hungry. He rose the dead back to life. He spoke to God on a mountain, and he didn't die. He was literally called up to heaven in a whirlwind and a chariot of fire. And I don't want to speak for you guys, because you may just be way better Christians than I am. But that does not sound like me at all. But that's what James says. And in fact, the same word that James uses when he says the same nature, when he's talking about Elijah, is it's the word homeopathes. And it's the same word used by Paul in Acts 14 when the townspeople are trying to worship he and Barnabas as gods. And he and Barnabas respond saying that they are of the same nature, they are humans just like them. And this was also true about Elijah. Elijah put his sandals on one foot at a time. He was a human being the same as us. He had human needs just like us. He had passions and desires. The biblical scholar Philip Ryken, he says this about Elijah. He says this means, talking about Elijah having the same nature as us, this means that great prophet though he was, Elijah's life of faith, obedience, and prayer is not out of reach. He is a suitable example for us of godliness. So everything hinges on this. Elijah is a suitable example for us of godliness. Now with that in mind, let's read our main text for tonight. We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. And it starts out like this. He says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, lead us into all truth tonight. God, I pray that we will see through your word that a faith like Elijah's, godliness like Elijah had, it's not supposed to be an anomaly, Lord. It's supposed to be attainable for us. We can love you like that. We can serve you like that. God, I pray that that will be evident in your word tonight. In your name, amen. A man like us, This guy, Elijah from Tishbe, who just put into motion, based off of God's word, a drought and a famine that would ultimately last for three and a half years. We don't know anything else about Elijah at this point. All right, this is the most epic introduction. Clearly, he doesn't need any more of an introduction, right? He bursts onto the scene as abruptly for us as he probably did for King Ahab at the time, right? Eventually, he would be known by King Ahab as the troubler of Israel, which is a pretty cool title. So let's dig into some context, all right? Why was Elijah in front of King Ahab to begin with? And this is actually our first point of common ground between us and Elijah. Elijah lived in an evil time just like we do. How bad was it? Well, the seven kings to follow David and Solomon were not good. 
They were bad dudes. Sorry bunch. All right, things characterized them like idolatry and murder and drunkenness and more murder and more idolatry. All right, they were bad dudes. One of them, King Nadab, he's listed simply as an evildoer. And that's not the nickname you want to have, right? So there's no explanation needed for him. King Omri then comes along as king number six, and it says that he did more evil than all who were before him. And then we get to King Ahab, and I'll just read you how Scripture introduces him. It says, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of his fathers, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now that is not the description you want on your tombstone. Right? Ahab is bad news. All right, sin was nothing to Ahab. He had no consciousness of sin or sorrow, all right? He married Jezebel, who was the evil woman behind the evil man. One commentator says that in reality, they were actually meant for each other. They were the Bonnie and Clyde of the Old Testament, all right? Jezebel was the daughter of a Sidonian king named Ethbaal, all right, which should give you a hint of who they worshiped as most valuable. But not only did Ahab marry a Baal worshiper, he became a Baal worshiper, The text says that he went on to serve Baal and worshipped him. He then erects this altar for him and makes an Asherah, which is the goddess of fortune, right next to Baal, who is the god of rain. And so how bad were things in Israel? The evil in the king soon gave way to to evil in the kingdom. They worshipped false gods. Evil was celebrated. Righteousness was devalued. And the people lived as they pleased. And in a lot of ways, we ought, this ought to sound familiar to us. And I'm not going to pretend like we live in, in, in the same world that they did, right? Because we don't. We don't have kings over us slaughtering people on the streets. But we do have a tolerance for sin that would rival even the worst of these kings. Because we also live in an evil time just like Elijah did. We live in a time when kids consider the sins of their parents to be trivial things. We live in a time of casual sex, unnecessary violence, and the murder of unborn children. Secular and spiritual leaders lean more into their own schemes than they do on God's desire for health in our communities. And so today more people bow to the idols of money and power and sex and self than they do at the altar of God. And so if we can't find any other common ground with Elijah, we can at least empathize to an extent with the time that he lived in. But here's where things get really interesting, and this is by far the most pivotal point of connection between us and Elijah. He didn't just live in an evil time like we do. In the midst of an evil world, he also knew the same God that we know today. Elijah's very name means, my God is the Lord. All right, in the text it says that Elijah spoke for the Lord, the God of Israel who lives. This is where the emphasis is on. It's on a living God, all right? And though to us this notion of a living God can seem familiar because we talk about it a lot, the very fact that he mentions it to Ahab, who was a Baal worshiper, would have been seen as a rebuke. 
And the reason for that is because even Baal worshipers didn't actually believe that Baal was alive. They believed he only was alive during the, during the fertile time of the year, during the rain. But during the dry season, he died. And so, so he shows up in front of King Ahab, proclaiming to serve the God who lives during both the rainy time and the dry time. And this is the same God we serve today, that that God is alive, rain or shine. And so for those of us who believe in this God, we know we serve a living God. And if anything, this is even more real to us now, right? Because we have seen that God has now revealed himself through Christ. And when he was raised to life from death, he showed that he conquered death forever. And Elijah's boldness as he approached the throne of the king of Israel was fueled by his belief that he served a living and active God. And so before we get too far with this, though, I can already hear what some of you are thinking because it's something that I thought along the way. It still doesn't seem quite fair that we can call on the boldness of Elijah simply because we served the same God he serves. Because Elijah talked with God. All right, his faith was strong because God spoke to him literally. And if I heard God's voice, I'd have a stronger faith too. And this is where I think we need to draw an important distinction between the faith of man and the power of God. Because the difference between us and Elijah has nothing to do with us and everything to do with God. The difference is not in the man, but in the God. Because we have the words, we have more of the words of God bound up in our Bible than Elijah ever had, more than anyone in biblical times ever had, And if we claim that the words of Scripture apply to us too, then that means that God does speak directly to us in the same way that he spoke to Elijah. So what makes Elijah relatable has nothing to do with the strength of our faith, and it has actually everything to do with the object of our faith. The object of our faith beats the strength of our faith any day. Tim Keller gives this incredible analogy to help drive this point home. He talks about two people on an airplane, and he says that, On the plane, there's this one person who's terrified of flying. He's convinced the plane's going to go down at every bump along the way. And then there's a frequent flyer who sleeps through any and all turbulence. All right, but neither the little faith of the one who's afraid or the big faith of the one who's not has any impact over the flight. But it all rests within the integrity of the aircraft and the skill of the crew. All right, you see, it doesn't matter how confident you are that the plane doesn't crash. If your dog is the one driving it, you're screwed. All right, it doesn't matter how insecure you are about the flight. If you have a skilled pilot and a strong airplane, you're good to go, right? The object of our faith beats the strength of our faith. And so the God of heaven, if he is the object of our faith, it doesn't matter if I have all the faith in the world or if I have just enough faith as a mustard seed because the God of the faith is bigger than the strength of my faith every day. Which is why we can cry to God like the Father in the book of Mark and say, I believe, but help my unbelief. And so Elijah knew this same God. And just like we know, Elijah knew that the God we serve is alive. He also knew that this living God would keep his word. And so when Elijah tells Ahab that there would be no rain and no dew for years, he wasn't just simply picking a random disaster, right? He didn't look at the calendar and say, well, we've already had two floods this year. It's time for a drought, right? That's not what happened. 
Instead, this, he's praying the specific words of God because he knew the punishment from God in his law in the book of Deuteronomy says that the punishment for idolatry and pagan worship was famine. And it's fitting because the Israelites had turned from God and trusted in Baal, who was supposedly the God of rain. And so not only was God going to stop all the rain, he was also going to stop all the dew, right? So that they couldn't look at it as just bad luck, right? Because it was clear that the God of judgment was against them. And this shows us a common theme that we see over and over and over in Scripture, of God wanting to be our sole provider. He wants to be the one that cares for our needs. He wants to be the one that casts out our worries and our cares because he is big enough to handle anything and everything we bring to him. God wants to be the sole object of our affection. He wants to be what we value and desire most of all. And so it's no surprise that the punishment for idolatry is the withholding of the thing that they think they need. And so some of you may be walking through a dry season of your own right now, wondering why God doesn't feel near. And and while there can certainly be other reasons for spiritual dry spells, it may be that you need to examine your life and see where the idols are. Do you value your money or your comfort or your independence or your work or your hobbies or anything else above God? Because God will not compete with your other affections. God wants to be what you desire and treasure and value and seek the most. And as long as there are other things that we keep on the throne of our hearts in place of God, he will always feel distant to you. And so God keeps his word. His judgments are not idle threats, as King Ahab would learn over the next three and a half years of famine and drought. And just as God keeps his word of judgment, he also keeps his word of provision. Verse 2 says, And the word of the Lord came to him and said, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook that I have commanded, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. God told Elijah that he would drink from the brook, and he did. He said that the ravens would feed him, and they did. God does not offer us empty promises. He never goes back on his word. And so although it would be hundreds of years later that Jesus would say these words when he says, to be anxious for nothing about what you'll eat, about what you'll drink, about what will clothe you, but instead to seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. This was a promise of provision from the God who always provides. It's a promise. In Psalm 23, we read that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, or I shall not lack anything. Charles Spurgeon, writing about this psalm, he said this. He said, I may not possess all that I wish for, but I shall not want. Others far wealthier and wiser than I may want, but I shall not want. The young lions do lack, they suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. It is, only, it is not only that I do not want, but I shall not want. Come what may, if famine should devastate the land or calamity destroy the city, I shall not want. Old age with its feebleness shall not bring me any lack, and even death with its gloom shall not find me destitute. 
I have all things in abundance, not because I have a good store of money in the bank, not because I have skill and wit with which to earn my bread, but because the Lord is my shepherd. God always keeps his word. So we live in an evil time like Elijah did, and we know the same God he knew. And so then what can we take away from this life of Elijah? All right, if he is a suitable example for us of godliness, what can we take away from his life as a strategy for serving the God he served in a time of evil like he also lived? I think there are three things that we can take away from Elijah's life in these verses. We'll walk through these quickly, but the verses, from these verses, I think we see three critical strategies. The first is that we see, what we see from Elijah is that he prayed God's word. Living for God in an evil world should make us all people of prayer. We have to go back to our passages in the book of James to see how much prayer actually characterized the life of Elijah. It says in five, seven, James 5.17, he says, He prayed fervently that it may not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. James indicates that the judgment of God announced to Ahab through Elijah was first prompted by Elijah in prayer. One commentator writes, he says, So before God talked to Ahab, Elijah talked to God. Before the prophet came to the palace gates in Samaria, he was in his prayer closet in Gilead. Before he was on his feet before the king of Israel, he was on his knees before the king of kings. Elijah, through prayer, made God's business his business. He was concerned about the activity of God. He was an intimate friend of God, and it's through prayer we often discern God's calling. And when we're burdened in prayer for the work of the Lord, it's often then we get called into the work of the Lord. And that's why Elijah could approach the king without fear. He wasn't afraid what people thought. He wasn't intimidated by high-ranking officials. He wasn't afraid of Jezebel, even though he knew that she had killed the prophets before him. The fear of God had driven out Elijah's fear of man. And this is the kind of boldness that only comes when we linger for a long time in the presence of God in prayer. One thing that's interesting about Elijah's prayer is that he prayed for such an intense judgment on Israel. But Elijah's prayer comes directly from God's word, like I said earlier. And because Elijah had this intimacy with God, he was also jealous for the glory of God. And he wasn't afraid to pray for judgment over Israel because he knew the state of their souls was so much more important than the state of their nation. He knew that their sin was a far greater tragedy for God's people than famine. And so a tough question to ask ourselves is whether or not we'd be willing to pray prayers like that today. Asking God to bring judgment for the sake of the heart's. Do we desire more that the U.S. remain a powerful country, or are we willing to see God have his way for the sake of the souls inside? Like Elijah, we need to be people of prayer, not simple nominal prayers, but prayers that bring us into the throne room of God. Prayers that make us desire far more what God wants than what we want. There are two more strategies from the life of Elijah that I want us to take note of, and we'll go through these a lot quicker than the first one. To live a life for Christ in an evil time, we have to obey God's word. Scripture says that Elijah went and did according to the word of the Lord. God wanted Elijah's obedience. He had revealed what he wanted him to do. 
And he expected his trust and his obedience. And again, I think we have to assess ourselves when we look at Elijah and we think about our own obedience. Because it can be easy to say that if the Lord revealed his will so clearly to me like he did to Elijah, if all he had to say to me was out loud to go to the brook and the ravens will feed me, if I received his commands that quickly, I'd be pretty quick to obey too. But we flatter ourselves because the words of God and the commands of God are often that clear in Scripture, and yet we disobey them all the time. God protected and provided Elijah for Elijah because he obeyed. Our obedience is an essential aspect of God's protecting grace. It would have been easy for Elijah to question in those moments to say, drink from the brook. You just said you were going to take away rain. How long is that going to last? Or, you mean the ravens are going to feed me like the ones that the law says are unclean? However, whatever objections Elijah had, he put them away because obedience was more important to God. He trusted the words of God. And this leads us to our final strategy for living a life of pursuing God in an evil time. Elijah stayed with God's word. One commentator writes that true obedience has staying power. And it needs to because living for God in an evil day takes more than one act of obedience. More often it requires a long obedience in the same direction. Elijah only had the word of God for his next step. Right? He was supposed to go to the brook and receive food from birds. All right? And then what? He didn't know. He just had to wait. And we don't know necessarily because the scripture doesn't tell us how difficult that was for Elijah, but Elijah was a man of action. He was a doer. All right? So it couldn't have been easy for him to just sit there and wait it out. But he knew that God would be staying there with him because Elijah wasn't trusting on the brook to bring him water. He was trusting on the God who made the brook. He wasn't trusting on the ravens for his food. He was trusting in the God who sent the ravens, right? And Elijah didn't trust the provision, but the God who provides, right? And this is key for us too, because otherwise we get too attached to the provisions. We get too attached to the gifts instead of the giver. But that is what has staying power. When you realize that you're staying with the God who provides, you don't have to worry about the provisions that make it happen. You can truly cast your cares on Christ and seek the kingdom knowing full well that all those things will be added to you. We can stay with God's word because like that quote from Spurgeon earlier, he says, I have all things in abundance, not because of the money in the bank, not because of my wit to earn my own food, but because the Lord is my shepherd. And as long as that is true, we can trust God the same in the waiting as we can when we hear his voice. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was a man like us. His faith and his godliness were not anomalies. They are an example of a life of faith that's attainable to us today. Trust in the God who provides. Pray his word, obey his word, and stay with his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that you will fill us with a desire for you. God, that in every way, we would want you more than anything else. That you would be the utmost of our affections. Lord, I pray that as we go out through this next week, God, that there won't be things that trouble us like those who have no hope. 
but God, that we will trust in the one who provides. In your name, amen.